Sad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. My name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And we have a few shout-outs to make. We do. We have four new patrons. We have Natalie, Jaleesa, Glenda, and Dana. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for your support. We really appreciate it. So the case that we are covering this week takes us to Raleigh, North Carolina, where Michelle Young, a 29-year-old wife and mother with an adorable toddler and another baby soon on the way, was attacked in her home and left for dead. And for all who knew Michelle and Jason Young, they appeared to be the ideal couple. But all of that came to a sudden end in the early morning hours of November 3rd, 2006, when Michelle Young was viciously attacked in her house. So it was 1.15 in the afternoon of November 3rd, 2006, when Meredith Fisher arrived at her sister Michelle Young's picturesque home on a quiet street in the Enchanted Oaks community of Raleigh, North Carolina. Meredith had previously lived at this home, located on 5108 Birchleaf Drive, right after graduating from college in New York. And at her sister's request, Meredith agreed to act as a nanny for her niece, Cassidy, until she was old enough to attend daycare. But Meredith's informal duties went far beyond taking care of Cassidy. She was in graduate school and with the ultimate goal of becoming a social worker with an emphasis in marriage and family counseling. As a result, she informally became the de facto marriage counselor for her sister and her sister's husband. Michelle and Jason Young had a volatile marriage and they were in desperate need of counseling services. But circling back to that day on November 3rd, Jason asked Meredith to stop by the house and pick up some eBay listings of designer handbags he had inadvertently left on his office printer. He was concerned that Michelle would discover them and it would ruin the surprise for a belated third year anniversary gift. Jason's original anniversary gift of a greeting card with a $25 gift card inside to Starbucks wasn't well received. Michelle was also unhappy that her husband was out of town on business for their anniversary. In fact, this was just one of the many issues in the Young's troubled marriage. So on that day when Meredith arrived, she remembered that she had given her house key to a dog walker the week prior. But to get in, she remembered that she had access through the garage. She opens the garage door, and she's so surprised to see that her sister's silver Lexus is sitting in the garage. Michelle should have been at work that day, and Cassidy, her daughter, should have been at daycare. She walked to the door, and she was greeted by Mr. Garrison, the couple's friendly black Labrador. He seemed anxious, but happy to have afternoon company. It was only after meeting Mr. Garrison, Meredith noticed that Michelle's purse and her wallet were on the floor by the stairs. She called out to her sister, but there was no answer. 
The stillness in the house was unsettling until she came across something that she couldn't quite process. As she arrived at the top of the stairs, she saw tiny red footprints all over the floor in Cassidy's bathroom and in the hallway. Meredith still wasn't registering any danger, just kind of noticed it. According to the book Murder on Birchleaf Drive, written by Stephen B. Epstein, Meredith thought that her niece maybe got in into paint or her sister's hair dye. She never could have imagined the truth as she continued to walk towards the master bedroom. There, she saw more red spots and red splashes across the walls and all the way up towards the ceiling. From the doorway, she noticed that half of the white bedding was also covered in a thick red substance that Meredith was now fearing was blood. She noticed the red liquid soaked through the comforter on Michelle's side of the bed and red splashes of color on Michelle's pillow. That is when Meredith connected the blood with the tiny red footprints she saw in Cassidy's bathroom and the hallway. Meredith was afraid to look on the floor between the closet and the bed, which was the only area she still hadn't examined. Her worst fear was confirmed when she saw her sister's lifeless body lying face down on the floor with a pillow between her legs. She knew Michelle's head was covered in coagulated blood. As Meredith was reaching for the phone to call 911, she noticed something moving under the blankets on Jason's clean side of the bed. To her shock, out came her two-year-old niece who had been hiding under the covers. Cassidy was wearing pink fleece pajamas without feet. She wasn't wearing a diaper, yet she appeared to be clean and dry. Her clean hands and feet added to the mystery given the bloody footprints and hand marks on the bathroom floor and walls. In complete shock, Meredith finally called 911 and she told the operator, I need an ambulance. It's an emergency. I think my sister is dead. She's like cold and her body is stiff. Oh my God. Tell me what happened, ma'am. I have no idea. Oh my God. All right, stay on the phone with me, please. Um, What's your name? Meredith. Meredith. And this is the young address. Oh my God. Meredith, listen to me, please. Yeah. Are you with the patient now? Yes, it's then her daughter. And okay. How old is the patient? And there's blood everywhere. She's 28, 29. 28? Can I try to move her? Listen to me, ma'am. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what to do, but okay. you need to calm down so we can help her. You said there's blood everywhere? Yes. All right. Is she conscious? No, I don't think so. Should I try to help her? Listen to me, ma'am. I'm listening. Is she breathing? I don't think so. Have you checked? Michelle? She's cold. Okay. Listen to me. Did you see what happened? I don't know. Kathy, come here, sweetie. I'm here with her daughter. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's like blood footprints all over the house. Okay, listen her daughter, to me. Like her daughter's little footprints. Okay, listen to me. What's your first name? Meredith. Alright, Meredith. Yes, sir. Did you see what happened? I, I, I just came here on a fluke. I usually, you know, don't come here during the day. Okay. She shouldn't be home. She should be at work. Like. Okay, listen to me. Yes, sir. I, I'm did you say, right now. can you tell me why why she looks that looks like she's dead? I don't know. I, I have no idea. There's blood all over the Did you say she's cold?
In the background, you may hear the little voice, and that is two-and-a-half-year-old Cassidy trying to explain to her Aunt Meredith that her mummy had boo-boos all over her body. She wanted Meredith to follow her into the bathroom for band-aids to help her mother. This little girl had tried to comfort her mother in other ways, too. She had laid one of her baby dolls next to her bloodied and battered body. The 911 dispatcher wanted Meredith to render aid to her sister, but Meredith was reluctant. She instinctively knew her sister was beyond help. And during the call, she asked Cassidy if she saw what happened to her mummy, but Cassidy continued to discuss her mummy's boo-boos. The dispatcher asked Meredith to turn her sister over to render aid, and on the call, Meredith told the 911 dispatcher that her sister was cold and too heavy to move. Once the dispatcher heard that Michelle was cold and stiff, he wanted to preserve the crime scene. He told Meredith to take Cassidy outside, and he connected her with a police officer who had questions for her. Meredith told the police officer that there was blood everywhere upstairs, and Mr. Garrison, their dog, had been freaking out when she first arrived. She told officers that her sister's husband was out of town in Virginia and had asked her to come by. She explained that Jason traveled a lot for business and was heading to his parents' home that morning since it was close to his client's meeting. Right away, police asked if the couple were having any problems, to which Meredith stated, Um, not really. You know, here and there, they fight a little bit, but nothing too ridiculous. This would turn out to be quite the understatement by Meredith, who seemed to be protective of Jason. Just two nights prior, Meredith acted as a referee for a four-hour-long fight between the couple where Jason complained about the lack of sex the couple were having and his desire to exclude his mother-in-law, Linda Fisher, from his family's upcoming Thanksgiving celebration later that month. Additionally, Michelle was still upset over their delayed anniversary dinner, which didn't go well. But the biggest source of contention was Michelle's desire to turn their third-floor attic into a mother-in-law suite for Linda Fisher. Michelle was five months pregnant and wanted her mother, who was retiring soon as a school teacher in Long Island, to act as their full-time nanny. Her mother, Linda, had bought a condo in North Carolina to be closer to her two daughters and her only grandchild. Now, the mother-in-law, Linda Fisher, and Jason Young had a long and mutual history of dislike for one another. Michelle, who was pregnant with a boy she planned to name Rylan, was insistent that a family member care for her newborn son during his first year of life. And at the time of her murder, she wanted her mother to be that person, just as Meredith had acted as Cassidy's nanny for her first year of life. Michelle, who was an accountant, had arranged with her job to work Tuesday through Thursday after the baby was born. She thought that it would be ideal if Linda spent the night Monday through Wednesday going home Thursday nights, and this would give the couple four nights a week to be alone. However, Jason wasn't having it. In the email written just 10 days before Michelle's murder, Jason made his feelings very clear. Michelle wrote, I agree, four days or so would be more ideal, and when she moves here, that will be the deal. 
We talked about how she'll only be at our house three nights a week, and one of those nights will be a designated date night for you and I to go to dinner, take a walk, play some tennis, whatever. Just make sure that we get some quality time together. Jason's response was incredulous. He stated, I don't get this. When she moves here, she shouldn't be here at all. That is what her house is for. If she wants to come and have dinner for a few hours, fine, but she is not going to live here. I do not want your mom here a week before Christmas, and I don't want her here through New Year's Eve. If she wants to come at Christmas and stay for two or three nights, then fine. I'm not spending my entire holiday season with my mother-in-law at my house. I am not wavering on this, and I I don't think I'm being extreme. I will simply choose to spend my Christmas elsewhere. Enough is enough, and I've told you this until I'm blue in the face. One of Jason's biggest complaints was that Michelle involved her mother in their lives on a daily basis. Talking to her several times a day and sharing all of her complaints about their marriage, which Jason felt should stay within the confines of their marriage. Jason wasn't above defending himself to his mother-in-law and often complained that he wasn't getting enough sex from his wife and he would often make inappropriate comments in front of her that he needed a girl on the side and then he would be happy in the marriage. Linda tried to talk to her daughter about the importance of intimacy in a relationship, but Michelle complained about the disgusting things her husband would say during sex and the way it made her feel. She wanted a loving and romantic encounter with her husband, and he wanted to recreate his favorite porn movies. Michelle knew her marriage was in trouble and wanted Jason to go to counseling with her. However, Jason said that there was no point in going to counseling until Michelle went alone first as he felt all of their problems were her problems and not the couple's problems. He would often tell Michelle to fix herself and then their problems would go away. Linda saw the changes in her daughter the longer Michelle and Jason remained married. Her smiling and extroverted daughter she had always known was vanishing before her very eyes. Michelle had been an outgoing cheerleader in North Carolina State and was now in a shell of her former self. After just three years with Jason, she had become sad and withdrawn. The day that Linda learned her oldest daughter had been murdered left her inconsolable. She immediately suspected Jason. The police felt the same way. They were eager to talk with their victim's missing husband. As Jason was traveling, death notifications were left up to Meredith. She knew Jason was planning to visit his mother after his meeting with his client. She had two messages to pass along, one that Michelle had been found dead, and two that police wanted to talk to him immediately. As Jason walked up to his mom, Pat Young's driveway, she and his stepfather, Gerald McIntyre, met him outside. He immediately knew something was wrong. They simply told him that Michelle had been found dead and Cassidy was with Meredith at her condo. According to Pat Young, Jason fell to his feet and was inconsolable. Jason and his mother and stepfather, along with his sister Heather and her husband Joe, drove Jason the 300 miles back to Raleigh. It was almost 11 p.m. when they arrived at Meredith's home. Upon arrival, 
Jason walked right past Linda into Meredith's arms, hugging her and telling her he was sorry. Then he got into bed with Cassidy and went to sleep. He had been alerted along the way from his friend Ryan that he needed to hire an attorney. The police were asking pointed questions, and it was clear that Jason was their number one suspect. Ryan was able to get him an appointment the next Monday with criminal defense attorney Roger Smith. Smith told Jason that he shouldn't speak to anyone without an attorney, not even to his family. Jason took that legal advice to heart, and the next morning, Linda told Jason that the police wanted to speak with him, but he once again told her that he couldn't and wouldn't be talking to anyone until he met with his attorneys first. The police came to Meredith's home demanding to speak with Jason, and again, he refused to talk with them. But he did make some comments that later wouldn't sit well with Linda Fisher. He mentioned he probably wouldn't be able to hang on to the house without Michelle's income, and he would need to sell it at a loss. The second comment that he made was that he hoped that he and Michelle's living will would stand up in court. His comment about the living will related to custody of Cassidy in the event he could no longer care for her. Years earlier, when Michelle and Jason were having their will prepared, Michelle wanted to name her sister Meredith as Cassidy's legal guardian. And since Meredith was single and hadn't finished school yet, Jason insisted that her sister Heather and her husband, who were already married and established, should act as Cassidy's legal guardian. Michelle reluctantly agreed under the condition that they would revisit the issue later when Meredith's life and career were settled. And now for the other comment about affording their home was even more odd in light of the life insurance policy Michelle and Jason had on each other. Jason insisted on taking a $2 million life insurance policy against each other with a double indemnity clause on any death other than natural, which meant that Michelle had a $4.25 million life insurance, which Jason must have known about. And this was more than enough for Jason to hang on to the house if he wanted to. After Jason met with his new criminal defense attorneys, it was their advice not to speak with the police at all. If Jason weren't already the police's number one suspect, he now had become their only suspect. Immediately following the funeral, Jason had his sister Heather take Cassidy with her to their home in the southern mountains of North Carolina more than four hours away. Jason also moved in with them and made arrangements to sell the house on Birchleaf Drive. As Jason was building a new life away from Raleigh, police were tearing apart his old life, looking for ways to tie him to his wife's horrific murder. The autopsy left little doubt that Michelle had been brutally attacked as she slept in her bed, as evidenced by the blood-soaked wall in bedding where her head would have been. Michelle fought for her life to no avail, resulting in defense bruising to her hands and arms. The medical examiner surmised that the bruising and scrapes to her hands and forearms were her attempts at deflecting the blows to her head. Michelle's head sustained more than 20 separate blunt force injuries. Lacerations found all over her back and her head, and some severe enough to expose her skull. 
the repeated blows fractured Michelle's skull in multiple places, resulting in hemorrhage to her brain. The weapon was a heavy, blunt object with a rounded surface. At least one of the blows was that to the front of Michelle's face, knocking out several of her teeth and fracturing her jaw to the extent the jawbone was coming through her skin. However, before she was bludgeoned to death, someone tried to strangle her. The medical examiner found extensive hemorrhaging to the soft tissue on her neck and around her hyoid bone, indicating manual strangulation. There were extensive scratches to her neck, which was determined to have come from Michelle trying to scratch away the hands around her neck as she desperately sought the ability to breathe. Hi, this is Daniel Rue of the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and Bet Online is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information with up to the minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Bet Online has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, Bet Online is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. Bet Online has real time updates on statistics, news, and odds. We're serious up betting on football. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at BetOnline, where the game starts. The medical examiner wasn't able to determine the time of death or even a ballpark range, other than it happened hours before Meredith found her cold, stiff, and covered in coagulated blood. Now, the other mystery was Cassidy's condition— the two-and-a-half-year-old who wasn't potty-trained just yet. Michelle had dinner with a friend the previous night, one of her former sorority girls, and the wife of the man who warned Jason he needed a criminal attorney. Her name was Shelly Shad. Shelly had just gotten back from her honeymoon, and the two were going to eat Italian food and watch their favorite show, Grey's Anatomy, together after getting Cassidy to bed. Shelly confirmed that Cassidy had been put to bed in a diaper and pink pajamas. Cassidy wasn't potty trained, and she certainly couldn't hold it for 17 hours, which is when Michelle would ultimately be found. Police theorized that whoever had killed Michelle had lifted Cassidy into the bathroom, as indicated by the break in her tiny footprints, washed her up, given her adult cold medicine, which had Cassidy's DNA on the applicator. Now, that adult cold medicine was sleepy medicine, and it would have caused her to sleep heavily until Meredith found her shockingly clean the next morning under the covers on her dad's clean side of the bed. Police wondered what kind of brutal killer would take such gentle care with a -a two-and-a-half-year-old witness other than someone who loved her. To them, this was just more proof that Jason was their man. Police also noticed that the killer had gone into Jason's closet, made a mess, and left the doors opened. When the forensic investigators closed the doors, they noticed that there was continuous blood spatter pattern on the doors that indicated it was closed during the time of the brutal attack. Police noticed that Michelle's engagement ring and wedding band were both missing from her hand something she never removed. There were also two drawers from her jewelry box missing, leaving behind only costume jewelry. 
While police were frustrated by Jason's unwillingness to speak to them, they were still able to serve a warrant for an examination of Jason's body in the collection of his DNA. Jason didn't have any bruises or scratches anywhere on his body, other than a tiny bruise located under the nail of his big toe. It certainly didn't look like anyone had scratched his hands trying to prevent him from strangling them. Without Jason's cooperation, Wake County investigators were on their own in trying to place Jason at the scene of the crime. They learned that Jason was planning to drive 170 miles to Hillsville, Virginia, where he planned to spend the night at the Hampton Inn. Then he would drive the last two hours to his appointment the following morning to sell them on proprietary healthcare-related software. On the evening of November 2, 2006, Jason printed out the directions on MapQuest for his various stops. Then he printed out a few eBay auctions for designer purses he planned to buy, in hopes of making amends with Michelle and being out of town for their anniversary, and arguing through their makeup dinner. According to police theory, Jason purposely left the printed eBay auctions on the printer for an excuse to have Meredith go the next day and find Michelle, and Cassidy who would be left alone with her mother's dead body. Next, Jason went downstairs and greeted Shelly Shad, declining her invitation to stay for dinner, saying he had plans to eat at Cracker Barrel along the way. He left his house at 7.30 p.m., stopping for gas near his home and filling up his tank. He arrived at the Cracker Barrel restaurant in Greensboro at 9 p.m. It was a bitter cold night at just 30 degrees with freezing high winds. Jason arrived at the Hampton Inn at 10.50 p.m. Four minutes after checking in, police were able to see him on security footage heading to his room. His keycard was used to open his door, and it would be the only time his door was open, according to the keycard data. The hotel records confirmed Jason only unlocked his door one time during his stay, prior to 11 p.m. on November 2nd. However, they did have other electronic footage of Jason, despite what his keycard information indicated. Interestingly, an hour later, he would be caught on camera again, heading down a hallway towards an emergency exit that was locked from 11 p.m. each night until 6 a.m. the following morning. After heading down that hallway, he popped back up at 11.58 p.m. in the hotel lobby security footage. He had changed his clothes and was at the front desk asking for a newspaper to check the sports scores. The police found this odd because he had his laptop with them, and he could have easily just checked the scores himself. He wouldn't be seen again on camera until the following morning. Police learned between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., the hotel desk clerk slips the bills under the doors for occupied rooms and hangs a complimentary copy of USA Today on each doorknob. Police inspected the room where Jason stayed and learned that the door was easy to leave partially open, thus bypassing the keycard recording. If Jason had left his door slightly open, why wasn't this noticed by the hotel clerk when he slipped the bill under the door and hung the newspaper? Without Jason's willingness to talk to them, it would be many years before they had the answers to these questions. But the desk clerk did have other observations that night. In the early morning hours of November 3rd, someone at the Hampton Inn had tampered with the surveillance cameras, which pointed towards the hallway leading to the emergency exit door. 
The camera had been unplugged and the door was propped open by a red landscaping rock. This was the same hallway that caught Jason on camera just before midnight. The desk clerk moved the rock and closed the door. Then he had the maintenance man get a stepladder and plug the camera back in. But an hour later, at 6.34 a.m., the camera was malfunctioning once again. This time, someone had merely pushed it up, so it was only recording the ceiling. And by this time, that emergency exit would have been locked. Police wondered if Jason used the door to re-enter the hotel, pushing the camera up so it wouldn't capture his image returning from killing his wife. Police thought this might be how Jason established his alibi. Was it even possible to drive 170 miles round trip, kill Michelle, clean up Cassidy, drug her, put her back to bed, and then drive all the way back by 6.34 a.m.? These were the answers police were hoping Jason would provide. Without his cooperation, they were stuck retracing his footsteps, with the limited information they were able to glean through investigative measures. Their first course of action was to take a road trip. Along the way, police were hoping there would be record of Jason stopping for gas. They knew his 2004 Ford Explorer got 19.5 miles per gallon. There was no way Jason could sneak out of his hotel room, drive back to Raleigh, and make it back to his hotel at 6.34 a.m. on one tank of gas. They had impounded Jason's car hoping to find forensic fibers or blood evidence from Michelle inside the car or the contents of his suitcase. So far, they were out of luck. What he did have were the MapQuest directions he printed from his home computer on November 2nd, and the bill slipped under his door between 3 and 5 a.m., along with the free copy of USA Today given to all guests. That means they had a tight time frame from 11.58 a.m. on November 2nd to 6.34 a.m. on the morning of November 3rd, and accounting for the time it took to get gasoline and murder Michelle. Two hours into their search, police found their witness. Gracie Doms was a cashier at the Four Brothers BP station in King, North Carolina. She was on duty during the early morning hours of November 3rd when police showed her a photo of Jason Young. She said that she remembered him getting gas at 5.30 in the morning. She said he pulled his white SUV up to the pump farthest from the store and repeatedly tried to pump gas. When she refused to turn on the pump, he came storming inside, frustrated and angry. He cursed at her for refusing to turn on the pump and threw down $20. He got only $15 in gas before driving off angrily. This would be perfect timing and the perfect amount of gas to get him back to the Hampton Inn by 6.34 a.m., which was around the time that the camera had been pushed up towards the ceiling at the hotel. Police were slowly building their case. Next, they talked with his client he met that morning. They discovered that Jason was 30 minutes late to his appointment. He apologized and told him that he got lost, despite having clear printed directions to his appointment in his car. En route to his appointment, they knew he made several phone calls, including one to Michelle's office and another to her cell phone. Both went unanswered. 
Then he made a call to Meredith asking her to pick up the eBay printouts at the house. When he failed to hear back from her, he called his mom and asked her to call Meredith to remind her to get the printouts. And Meredith would later tell police that this was the first time she had ever received a phone call from Pat Young, Jason's mother. Jason made another call to Meredith at 1.37 p.m., leaving a second voicemail reminder. The message to Meredith said, Hey, it's Jason, just calling you back. I wanted to get an update, and I also wanted to let you know I called my mom and I gave her that message. My phone has been a total suck-up. I don't know if you heard the whole thing, so I told her the deal. I think she's going to try to call you. I tried to call Michelle, but not super aggressively because I want to find out for sure if you've taken those papers or not. Anyway, I will talk to you again later. If you get the chance, call me. Bye. Now, Jason wasn't having any luck getting a hold of Meredith or Michelle that morning. But he was having luck getting a hold of one of Michelle's sorority sisters in Florida. That person was Michelle Money. Soon, it would be very clear that the two were engaged in a not-so-secret extramarital affair. In fact, Jason had recently admitted to one of their mutual friends that he was in love with Michelle Money and she was in love right back. Michelle Money quickly admitted to the affair and was more than willing to provide details. Now, remember that anniversary Jason had recently missed? The one he was trying to make up for with the surprise designer purse? Well, it turns out Jason wasn't out of town on business, as he told his wife Michelle. The only person out of town that week on business was Michelle Money's husband. And as a result, Jason and Michelle were able to spend what she described as three glorious days together in a non-stop sexual affair. But she wasn't the only affair Jason was having with one of Michelle's friends, and she wasn't the only person Jason had recently had sex with. And I know you want to hear more, but this is where we're going to conclude our episode for this week. In part two, we will bring you the conclusion to this case, which ultimately took six years, two criminal trials, one civil trial, and one custody battle to bring to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. Hi, this is Daniel Rue the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. BetOnline has real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. We're serious up betting on football. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at BetOnline, where the game starts.
On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.